I'm not a fan of recording. I think it, I think it uh, prevents it from ruining. Because then you're you're so worried about recording, you're not paying attention to the class itself. So um, anyway, but uh, the people want it. I, I think you're allowed to do it, but we have to see what you say. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint John Chrysostom, pray for us. Saint Raymond of Penafort, patron saint of canon lawyers, pray for us. On the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So welcome to uh, our MA class in Introduction to Canon Law. Um, I hope this is working for everybody. I'm hearing all sorts of strange noises. I don't know what they mean. Was that something you were doing or no? Okay. So um, I'm not sure about the electronics. You, uh, those who are on Zoom, um, am I looking at you now? Okay. So that it's that camera that I'm, that is you. Okay. Because I see, see you up there, but you're not up there. You're over there. Okay. All right. We'll have to figure this out, especially for the guys on Zoom. Uh, and lady. We have one lady on Zoom also. Uh, if you um, if you want to make a statement or ask a question or something, we have to uh, – I'll just keep watching you. Because, uh, the way it works for the rest of the class, we'll, we'll figure it out. So um, <coughs> my name is Father Bill Elder, um, and I'm Professor – Canon Law. I'm basically, I'm basically the Canon Law Department. Well, actually, that's not true. We have some other campuses, a couple of guys. But, um, and I, I've been chairman of the Canon Law Department for a good number of years. Uh, I was um, uh, actually since the merger uh, back in 2012. And uh, I, I was here uh, full-time, as a full-time professor with all the other responsibilities until a couple of years ago when in desperation, um, uh, Bishop Ed Whalen asked me if, if I would take over a parish that was being abandoned by the Redemptorists, the religious community down in the, uh, uh, in the East Village of Manhattan. So uh, I was down there for a couple of years, uh, bringing that parish kind of into the orbit of the Archdiocese. Uh, we, um, it had been a very inactive parish. I had thought it had closed, but uh, it was open and uh, very uh, low attendance and not much going on. So we, we uh, tried to do what we could to revive it, even with COVID. And now I have a, a successor there uh, who is one of my former students, and he's uh, full of energy. So I'm, uh, and he's attracting the young people. That, that area is all young people. The problem with the parish was that the Redemptorists were still catering exclusively to the Hispanics, and they're part of the they're part of the parish, but only part of the parish, and. In that area, the, the Hispanics are aging, um, and you don't have young Hispanics going to mass. You know, so um, the, it's getting, the congregation was getting smaller and smaller. We had to. They, and my successor still has to reach out to the young adults. If you walk around down in the East Village, it's all young adults. You know, um, so it's it's a it's a real challenge for uh, your sizes. My successor. So I'm helping him out on weekends, but basically I'm back here full time. Uh, 
know, first thing I should do, I suppose, is um, take attendance and try to get to know um, you guys and one, one lady. Um, oh, okay. So Cynthia says, that is correct. Tap the record button and enter your email address in the box. Let me see if this works. All right. So you guys want to record some, some want to record it, correct? Because I'm not yeah, a fan of this. All right. Let me see what it is. Enter the email address. <clears throat> I, I think it's recording now, I think. Um, yeah, it is. Because now I have a button that says yeah. the press to stop recording. So how do you know? It, it says record on the top left. Okay, all right. So um, yeah, this is all copyright. Well, I guess we should get into that when we look at the syllabus. So first of all, let me um, get to know uh, uh, all of you. Let me just send a reply to the Yeah, but it's not in public, so uh, 
Well, let me let me take the other attendance, which is um, Chris Greer. Hi. Yeah, that's me. Chris Greer. Dias is your second veterinarian. Okay, Dias is a fair of Bridgeport. Bridgeport, yeah. yeah. So we're in Connecticut. Good. Chris Greer. James Meehan. Here, are diocese of Bridgeport and in uh, the town of Westport. Westport. Yeah. And I actually, to Dutch point, we're both MA students, so I think that is oh, the case. Oh, okay, the other ones have listed. Um, yeah, um, I, I grew up actually mostly in Fairfield, our uh, oh. assumption. Uh, we're in Westport. Yeah, yeah, so not far. So, now, I just saw some other names somewhere. I don't know where I oh, I saw them. Uh, that's for attendance. No, wait a minute. Let me. Um, so, alright, so Mark Wolf's present. Okay. Mark present. And. Um, Anthony Reno. Anthony Reno from uh, St. John and St. Mary Chappaqua. And the pastor there is Edward O'Halloran. And somebody, somebody's talking with the without the mute. Yes. Okay. 
What congregation is it? Do you remember? Is the Canon Rembra? Canon Rembra. Oh, okay. Was that the church that was joined by the Paulists? No. Something else in Okay, who else did we miss? Luca Garcia, St. Anastasia, in Harriman, New York, Father Mike Payne. Okay, and did we get you? Sorry. All right, and then over here, who did we not get? The From Bridgeport, the three guys we didn't get. The three guys in the top. The three guys in the top, yeah. yeah. So if you, yeah, so you are, so I can barely see your names on the screen. So what is your name? Anybody, identify yourself. <laughs> George Payne from the Diocese of Bridgeport, St. Mary in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Oh, St. Mary's in Ridgefield, that's kind of well known. Who's the pastor? Monsignor um, Kevin Royal. Okay, yeah. Is, is that where they, they have the Latin Mass a lot, or I'm thinking of another place? Oh, all right, okay. Okay. So who else did we miss? Um, Vince Pia, Diocese of Bridgeport, uh, St. Marguerite Bourgeois in uh, Brookfield. Um, yes. And you might be thinking of St. Mary's in Norwalk, I Connecticut. I they am. have the Latin Mass every day. That's right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Every day, wow. Yeah. And the former pastor there is... Remember his name? The former At, pastor of St. Mary's in Norwood. You probably don't remember his name, but uh, uh, he came down I know. to my church and did a Latin Mass. And uh, boy, it was Father Ringley. I don't know when. Uh, and I don't know whether he's still there or not. Uh, somebody else who came down anyway. He was a. He, I think he was a convert. He was in. Uh, he had been an Episcopalian priest or something. Anyway, okay. Who else did we miss? What is it says? Diocese of Wishford from St. Margaret Shrine and, and Wishford. St. Margaret Shrine, that, um, yeah, I remember that from when I was a kid. We used to visit that place. It was fascinating with all the statues. Yes, back up you. So you, um, but you, you, you're actually assigned there canonically? I mean, is it a parish? Yes, it's a parish. It's better than the parish after the cruise. St. Patrick, who used to be St. Oh. Patrick and together, but after they closed, they closed a few church and this spot, it became a palace now. Yeah, I used to love visiting there, all the statues. Yeah. What do, what do we yes, we see there, it's getting better, it's getting nicer now. It looks very nice now. You should go visit it again. Yeah, really it's not yeah. And last but not least, Jacqueline Dubitman, Diocese of Brooklyn and Queens. Oh, you're from Charleston, you came in and. Oh, very good. Oh, okay. So you're from Brooklyn. All right. Um, I don't know where I saw all your names somewhere, but it's not on my app. Maybe uh, it wouldn't be on here. I'm afraid to touch that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, we'll have to see what happened, but uh, there's a glitch, obviously, because you should all be. You should be on my uh, my app here. Okay. And, and Father, there's one more from Bridgeport, Dr. John Williams. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not. I guess he doesn't uh, can't figure out how to unmute himself. Oh. But he's from okay. Westport also. Okay. He's the guy in the box with the glasses. He's not moving. Oh, all right. Well, that's. He's gone. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
He was there earlier. Yeah, he was here earlier, but he's gone now. Yeah. All right. He's All these. He's here. He's still here. Okay. Well, we don't we don't see him. That's it. I'm still here. Where? Yes. He's incognito. I can't figure out how to get back. There he is. Well, as long as you can hear us. That's what I meant. I can hear you. Okay. All right. So we'll have to figure out what uh, what went wrong with the registration. Good. Okay. Now you all, I hope, uh, got a copy of the syllabus. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, you got a copy. You look on your on your uh, your iPhone and see you see the syllabus, right? So I just like to go over that um, briefly. This is the one and only course that you'll have in Canon Law. I think you guys are uh, mostly in your fourth year, correct? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay, so, um, so this is, uh, so everything else has been a buildup for this. This is the most important course that you'll take. In a certain sense, in a certain sense it is, because this course will keep you out of jail. Uh, <laughs> and will keep you from getting sued, from bankrupting your parish and bankrupting the archdiocese. I kid you not. <laughs> you know. uh, you, you, you need to know, this is, you know, and when you work for any organization, you know, you have to, uh, you represent that organization and you have to know what that organization is about. You have to know all its rules and regulations. You have to be, you, you are expected to be professional, you know, and especially now, you know, the parish where I just was, um, in desperation, they pulled me out of the seminary to go down there, but they couldn't keep me there because uh, uh, Father O'Reilly died and we, we didn't have enough guys here. Um, the, the pastor in the neighboring parish was, was being, uh, uh, was finishing his, his 12 years and he was moving on to another parish. They simply didn't have two priests to replace it. So I'm, I'm replaced by one priest uh, who's going to be the, now the administrator, then he'll be the pastor for two parishes. Um, he's, uh, he's alone, except when I visit on weekends. He's, he's 32 years old. He's my former student. And he's running the whole shebang, you know. Um, Father Sean Conley. Father Sean Conley. Yeah, you know him. I know him. So does Paul. Oh yeah, yeah. Great, great priest. Very, with the young people, he's very inspirational. He, yeah. He he pulls them together. And, and it was it was a stroke of genius. Actually, it was the Holy Spirit. It was almost a mistake that he was sent there, but uh, things worked out because God. I think I just think God has His eye on that parish where I was because some very very fine people have come here. We have a great. Um, business manager um, who's, who's a revert, you know, she, she's come back to the faith, she's totally dedicated to the church, um, and she's young and energetic, and uh, we have a great music director recommended by Dr. Donaldson herself. Um, I was able, um, we, got, we got a little bit of money at one point, I was able to get some investments, place that's what we needed them, we fixed the place up. Um, and then Father Conley came in, and the big, the big challenge there is what I said earlier, is reaching out to young people because uh, it's, the only ones going to Mass are, uh, God bless them, uh, they're Hispanics, the faithful aging Hispanics, but they're older, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're not, their kids aren't coming, you know. Uh, but all those young people in that, in that neighborhood, so since he arrived, yeah. If anybody can fill those pews as far wow, as Wow, since he arrived, it's amazing, yeah. you know. One evening he had, a Monday evening, Monday evening, he had solemn vespers. Monday or Tuesday evening, it was Monday evening. In August, he had solemn vespers, uh, followed by a talk given by a, a, an author. 
And he, he had like a hundred young people, it was all young people yes. who came to this, you know? Because they like the incense and the chanting and everything else, you know? Um, and he didn't, he didn't yeah, tax place like that. Well, Every time, I'm from Middletown up in Orange County. Oh, okay, so that's where he was. He was at St. Joe's, and when he did a Latin mass, yeah. it was 90% young people, packed, yeah. all dressed for the nights. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's the other thing. Yes, they dress well. Yeah. That's, that's why they want to go to the Latin mass. Go to one with Father Sean, and you, you'll yeah. see that's, you know, yeah, yeah, he's cool. bringing it back. Yeah, so anyway, so, but um, my, my, the point that I was making is, now he's got a lot of energy, He's, he's young. The, pardon? He's young. He's young. <laughs> he's going to age quickly because he's going to start eating. He fired yeah. the cook. Once I came back here full time, he fired the cook. <laughs> so he, he's not eating, so uh, you got to pray for him. But, uh, but um, anyway, my point is uh, we're running out of priests, mm. you know, um, and it's happening all over. That's not the only place where they replace uh, two pastors with one. You know, it's, it happened in several places in the Archdiocese over the summer. Uh, and it's happening in other dioceses as well. Um, so you guys need to know your stuff, you know. Um, and you, um, in, in, the, in the past, uh, I, I think what happened more often than not was guys would would go through the courses here. They would um, uh, take the canon law and kind of get an idea for things, but then they'd rely on the pastors to show them really what to do. You have to think of yourself really as being the position of um, when it comes comes to marriages in particular, of being in the, in the position of uh, a, a priest who's, who's newly ordained and thrown in, in, into, a, into a parish or pastor, you know, um, because you're going to be functioning a lot on your own because the pastor is not going to have that much time to talk to you. you know? So you've got to know your stuff. You've got to know your stuff. So this uh, uh, this course, as, as you'll see, does not require a lot of reading. I'm not going to require you to read all sorts of books and things. But I am going to require that you read and read and reread um, the the canons of the Code of Canon Law and know the law and know how to apply it. That's what this course is about, right? So I think uh, besides uh, besides Jackie, is there anyone here who's not preparing to be a deacon or a priest? I think everybody here is preparing for ministry, right? Yeah. No, I'm not. Who's, who's Dr. Williams? Oh. Dr. Williams from, uh, from the Bridgeport. Uh, oh, okay. From Westport. Oh, all right. I'm so just there just, just to keep my brain active, that's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, well, so I, by the end, I mean, it's, it's useful stuff for, for everybody who takes the course, because anyone who's involved at all in any kind of parish ministry, this is what this is designed for. So it'll be helpful for you, too. But we do want to um, really prepare these guys because uh, this is it, right? This is your last, uh, your last year, and then you're thrown out there, and you've got, you know, you're gonna have a lot of work to do. So, um, <clears throat> if we just go over the syllabus a little bit, uh, so, so you can see what this is all about, um, you should have it right on your. Um, oh, you probably printed it up, right? Everybody's printed it, or we should have it right in the on, on Puppet either. Either way, I'd be just gonna follow along as I'm um, going through it. Um, uh, the course description this course will introduce students to the study of canon law as an indispensable basis for responding to canonical issues and questions that arise in pastoral ministry. That's what this is all about. Canon law is applied to pastoral ministry. Through an examination of the history and theology of law in the church, they will develop an understanding of the role played by canon law in the daily life of the church. 
the course will focus in a particular way on the candidates that are most important in parochial ministry. That's, that's really the name of the game here. Okay? Um, so um, the intended student learning outcomes, you can read those at your leisure. You know, this is all in there for accreditation. You know? um, but they're important. Um, getting to the nitty-gritty, the, the required text. Uh, I see some of you have, um, have a few of you anyway have, the, uh, have one of the, uh, the possible, possible texts. We, um, all I'm requiring that you have uh, to buy and have and treasure and make it a part of your life is, um, uh, is a, a good commentary in the Code of Canon Law. And I um, gave you two choices. The first choice is the one that is used by most um, American clergy. And that is the, um, they call it various things, they call it the brick. They, they call it because it's, uh, you get a good workout with this thing, you know. Um, the, uh, it's a, the commentary on canon, a new commentary on the Code of Canon Law that was um, commissioned by the Canon Law Society of America. Right? So you have some pretty uh, heavy hitters involved with this. Uh, I was beginning my studies, just so you, just so you know, uh, my background. I, um, I was ordained a year and a half. I was ordained in 1981. Uh, Father Sergio was ordained, I think, a year, a year later. But um, I was ordained in 1981. I was, was having a great time at Sacred Heart Church in uh, Suffern, New York. Um, you know, just a lot of stuff going on. It was a great, great place. And a year and a half after, after I was ordained, one evening, and it was an evening in June, I was uh, uh, I, I was meeting with a couple. I had uh, another meeting scheduled. I think it was about a baptism. Um, the phone was ringing off the hook. Somebody came to the door. There was a lot going on. In the middle of all that, one of the phone calls was the rector of the seminary. And he wanted to talk to me. And I said, well, I'm kind of busy right now. So well, he said, well, can you call me later? He said, it's really important. Um, <laughs> I had a feeling what was coming, so anyway, um, we called him back and he said that um, Cardinal Cook, um, that's how long ago that was, wanted me to, to uh, study canon law. And um, they, they sent me first to Catholic University in Washington um, to get the, the licentiate in canon law, and then they sent me to the Angelican in Rome to get the doctor. Um, anyway, when I was at Catholic University in Washington, I got to know that these guys. <laughs> Uh, who, uh, who, um, who put this commentary together. Um, very, very fine scholars, all of them. Um, and all of them, I would say, of a, of a certain persuasion. Uh, you think about, this is the mid-80s, uh, when the original, uh, the, the original commentary came out. This is the second edition. The original one was red, this is green. Um, and they're all very, very fine scholars, and all of a certain persuasion, very, very much, uh, you know, if you want to think in terms of left and right, very much to the left. You know, um, those were times at Catholic University when uh, there was a lot of a lot of upheaval, a lot of ferment. Uh, there was a famous theologian uh, named Charles Curran uh, who had led uh, a rebellion against Humanae Vitae, and he was uh, he was a very influential professor there. Um, and he influenced, and others like him influenced the theology department and the canon law department. So when I was there, um, you, you didn't, you couldn't wear one of these. Immediately, that labeled you as being, oh, you're, you're one of those. You're conservative. You couldn't say mass. 
um, guys would say mass, uh, there's one guy who said mass in his room, he locked the door like he was in a communist state. He locked the door and say mass privately. You know? um, we weren't allowed to say, um, you, you could be the presider you know, once in a while, um, as they called him the presider. Uh, but basically you couldn't say mass, you couldn't say private mass, couldn't come celebrate. So uh, a number of us went over to the National Shrine, the Immaculate Conception, which was right there. And they, uh, they put us on, um, they put me on the staff and some other guys as well. And we'd either say a public mass there or a private mass, whatever it was, one of those beautiful side altars. So that was the, that was the, the ethos of, of Catholic University. I remember in the mat and in the morning, going over to the shrine to say mass putting my collar on, running back to my room and changing into like regular clothes. So, you know, we wouldn't have a whole bruja because I showed up uh, wearing this, you know. So that, that's the way things work, okay? So these guys were, um, it was, this was their heyday. Um, uh, Tom Green, um, one of the main editors here, was uh, one of the most illustrious professors at Catholic University. He was, the man was brilliant. He, he passed on a few years ago. Um, he taught us most of it, don't get into all of that. Um, James Corden is, uh, a, again, a well-known um, uh, canonist. And John Beale uh, was just, uh, he was finishing his doctorate as I was beginning my, uh, my licentiate. You know, so he was two years older than me. And, he, uh, and then he obviously became a professor there, so, and still is. Uh, so very, very knowledgeable guys. But the point I'm making is when you read this, if this is the commentary you choose, um, a couple of things about it. One is it's, um, it's exhaustive and exhausting. Um, it has um, all sorts of very, very uh, useful information. It's geared for an American uh, audience. You know? So it's, it's, it's really geared for uh, priests and deacons and others in parishes who have a lot of practical questions that typically come up in parishes in the United States. You know, so it's very, very useful from that point of view. Um, just one ca caveat, knowing the point of view of some of the authors here. Now, th there are many, many authors in this, um, in this commentary. Knowing the point of view of some of the uh, authors, just be on your guard, because everyone's going like to read something that is totally off the wall. You know? um, so you just have to be aware of that. Uh, but most of the time, it is very, very useful, very, very helpful, and most clergy in the United States uh, use, use this. Um, so the other uh, commentary that, that I recommend is um, the, uh, the Code of Canon Law that is uh, published, it's in the um, Grazianus uh, series by um, the Midwest Theological Forum. And this is um, a condensation of a multi-volume uh, commentary that was that was produced by the University of Navarre in Spain. And any, if you know anything about what's going on in the church, you hear University of Navarre, you know Opus Dei. Okay, so this is produced by Opus Dei. Uh, this is just a, 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 an abridged version of that multi-volume commentary. That multi-volume commentary is the gold standard for um, uh, canonical commentaries. And we have, uh, we have a copy of it uh, on reserve in the library. So if you need to get into uh, depth in any particular uh, area, uh, that's, that's the place I would go to first. This would be a, a, a kind of summary of that. Um, and a, a lot of scholars from around the world worked on the Spanish original 
and also the English edition. Some, um, uh, some candidates that I know, even in the Archdiocese of New York, uh, did some of the translations for that. So it, it's uh, uh, some very, very fine people worked on it. Pluses and minuses. Um, uh, the plus is the original, you know, the multi-volume commentary is the best. You know, that gives you the definitive answers. Um, th this would obviously give you shorter answers, you know. Big plus is you're not going to find any heresy in here, as far as I know, you know. You're not going to find some off-the-wall theory that somebody has, you know. Uh, another big plus for me, uh, and sometimes for you as well, another big plus that they have here is you have the English and the Latin side by side, you know, so you probably can't see this, but here's the Latin here and the English here for, um, uh, for a canon, which can be very, very useful because uh, it's, it's hard to translate some of, the, uh, some of the Latin. And even if you don't know the Latin, uh, I'll sometimes be referring to the Latin in, in the course uh, to point out you know, a particular word that, that, uh, that has all sorts of connotations and so forth. So that can be very useful. Um, the, the commentary itself, is, is, is certainly very useful. Um, it would be uh, authentically Catholic, uh, no problem there. But um, this is meant for a universal audience, a worldwide audience, as opposed to the, the, the other commentary, which is geared mostly to, uh, to the United States. So it, it won't be as focused on the kinds of issues that might come up in an American parish. And, um, this, will, this will not be as focused, perhaps, as this would be. You know? It depends, you know. Um, when I was working in the tribunal, uh, I, one of my jobs was, you know, so after I, I uh, received my canon law degrees, I, I escaped uh, getting into the bureaucracy for another two years. I went back to Suffern for two very happy years, but then the call came, and I had to move downtown, um, start working at 1011 First Avenue um, in the tribunal, and uh, at least I was able to uh, live at St. Agnes on 43rd Street, which is a uh, great midtown parish. I began working on the tribunal. And uh, I worked there for, uh, for many years, basically until I came here. Um, and uh, I, was, I had various offices in the tribunal, and eventually I became the head of the tribunal, the judicial vicar. Uh, at that point, it's like I was thinking, boy, I'd really like to do something else at this point. And one day, uh, there was a priest from the Diocese of Brooklyn who made an appointment to uh, visit me. Um, and, I said, fine, yeah, sounds like a nice guy. So this uh, this young priest by the name of Father James Massa uh, came to uh, to visit me, and um, you know, I and I, you know, I'm older than he is, and I was, you know, my attitude was, oh, what can I do for you, young man? You know, not quite like that, you know. So he was telling me all about the seminary and how he uh, and, and this the merger and how they they uh, they're going to do great things in the seminary and so forth and. Um, and, and how they needed uh, faculty there. And uh, he got me all excited about the seminary. And I said, well, you know, I'm really, really busy in the tribunal, but I suppose uh, if I could delegate things to other people, I could come up one day a week, you know, and just teach, you know, three periods in a row or something like that. And he said, okay. And then it turned out Cardinal Dolan had already decided that he wanted me to come here full time, but hadn't told me. <laughs> so he told me later. But um, anyway, um, when I was in the tribunal, that's a roundabout way of, of saying, when I was in the tribunal, um, this was our go-to commentary. Because we had to make sure we got things absolutely correct. You know? uh, and this, this is one we could rely on. So we would go to this first. Then if we saw the problem, we'd go to this one, we'd go to several others and so forth. Um, 
So uh, I can recommend either one. The important thing is uh, that what you need to do in this course is to know these canons, all right? Know them inside and out. Not all of them, the ones that we're going to go over. Um, you need to know them inside and out. You need to be able to apply them uh, in real life situations. That's what this course is basically going to be about. Okay? So again, either, either book is fine, but keep up with it, all right? I'm not going to tell you every week, read pages such and such, but we'll be discussing, say, canons one through 10. So whatever commentary you have, read the canons and reread and reread the canons and read the commentary until you get it, okay? And, and you'll see it'll be kind of difficult in the beginning because we're dealing with basic principles, general norms and things. And, and in any field, those are kind of abstract, um, and so you, you kind of have to get focused on them, right? But um, that's basically what you'll be doing in this, in this course, but either one. So how many of you have a commentary already? Okay, about half of you. You have a little bit of time to get a commentary because we're gonna have introductory material um, today and next week, but uh, uh, we might we might start next week, though. We might start with commentary, but, uh, with the with the canvas, but uh, that's okay. Just uh, get the commentary as soon as you can. Um, I guess you have to get it on Amazon or something, right? Um, yeah. Or even the Canon Law Society of America, they might uh, sell so this one. Uh, yeah, you can go directly to the source, the Midwest Theological Forum for this one. Uh, just, just Google them, uh, go to their website, the Midwest Theological Forum, um, and uh, or the um, Canon Law Society of America for the other one, right? And, and that information is, is right on the syllabus. All right. <clears throat> So we're going to uh, go through uh, today, and maybe we'll see how far we get today. Um, probably next, part of next week as well. Uh, if you look at the course outline, so we're going to do a general introduction. You have to get oriented to, the, to this. Um, and we'll, we'll explain something about the unique nature of, can, of canon law. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the errors that people make about not just canon law, but about law in general. And then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of things. Uh, so we're going to go through um, book one of canon law um, in an abbreviated way. In the, in the seminary, uh, the seminarians go through it um, in, in great detail. You'll go through it um, with less detail because you have so much else to cover. But we'll get, go through the, the important concepts and procedures that you need to know. Um, so you see some of them listed there, uh, general decrees and instructions administrative acts, juridic acts, ecclesiastical offices, and, and so forth. And then um, that's all part of uh, book one. Then we get into book two of the Code of Canon Law, which is um, is entitled The People of God. And th this describes uh, different groups and individuals in the church. So we get into the uh, obligations and rights of all the faithful, sacred ministers, and so forth. Then we get into the hierarchical constitution of the church, um, from the from the Pope on down or on up, depending on, on how humble the, the Pope is. You know, he's, he's like uh, Saint Gregory the Great. He thinks of himself as the servus servorum dei, the servant of the servants of God. So he'll consider himself at the bottom, and uh, lay people will be at the top. But uh, whatever it is, uh, from the Pope on through uh, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, and lay people. Um, then we will. Um, get a little bit into the canon law for sacraments that you will, uh, you will need 
especially as deacons, uh, but also just working in, in parish ministry. Um, so that would, um, that would include uh, basically baptism. Uh, a little bit about confirmation. And then the rest of the course will all be about marriage. Okay? And that's really important to get that straight. Um, it'll, it's a great service that you can perform uh, for your, your pastor. If you can take charge of weddings, you know, um, even, uh, you know, doing weddings yourself, as a pastor, if they people don't want to mass, even if they do want to mass, there's no reason you could not, um, you know, the, the pastor or whoever is there could say to mass, and you could play into the wedding itself, you know. Uh, I did that for my own sister. When I was um, a deacon, I wasn't yet ordained a priest. My, my sister got married down to Corpus Christi Church in Manhattan, and uh, the pastor was the celebrant, um, and, and I did, I did the vows, you know. So, uh, and also the, all the paperwork and everything that's involved, instructions and all of that, if you can do that, uh, for your pastor, at least a part of it, you, you will be an enormous help, especially if you're in a busy parish with a lot of writing. Same with uh, baptisms. Um, so we'll go through what's necessary for uh, for marriage. The nature and essential properties of marriage itself, pastoral care, uh, what are called impediments, dearman impediments, uh, that prevent someone from being able to contract marriage validly, the form of the celebration of marriage, uh, how people are allowed to get married, what kind of a ceremony. The effects of marriage, uh, we'll get into that. What, how do the people's lives change canonically right? and theologically? Uh, and then what sometimes happens, the separation of the spouses, uh, the marriage nullity process, uh, and, and other aspects of, uh, of marriage law. Okay? That's basically the, the course. There's an awful lot that we cannot cover uh, from the Code of Canon Law. The Code of Canon Law is seven books. We're going to look at uh, parts of three books, you know, uh, and that, that's all we can do. Um, and that's basically what's happening now. I was talking to somebody today who, uh, 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 oh, uh, Father, uh, um, Father Michael Bruno, when he went to, uh, when he studied uh, for a seminary in, in Rome, they did the same thing that we're doing here. So there was a, a general introduction. Uh, books one and two, uh, and then, then there was a, a second course in marriage, um, which we'll do for seminarians. You're getting those two kind of conflated into, into one. So the course evaluation. So how many taking it for credit? Okay, all right, all right a few of you. So um, you have a, a written midterm, a written final. The midterm is worth 25%, the final is worth 50%. Uh, and in addition to that, um, I'm asking you to write a short paper, you know, five pages, you know, basically, something like that, uh, an evaluation of a pre-Cana conference. So I'm going to ask you, very practical paper, I'm going to ask you to visit a pre-Cana. Okay, so um, uh, what you'll need to do is, uh, in whatever diocese you're from, uh, find out, and this is what, what your parishioners are going to have to do, so you should do it now in advance so you know what they'll go through. Uh, find out about pre-Cana, um, you know, where and when and so on and so forth, and and then uh, get in touch with uh, those who are running the pre-Cana and tell them you've been assigned, you're studying them, what are you been assigned to attend to write uh, an evaluation paper, okay? Uh, and that's basically it. In, in, the, in the paper, I've just asked you 
kind of to uh, describe briefly um, what the approach was, what was going on. Um, then your own evaluation, how effective is this? Is this getting across what has to be gotten across to these people who are going to be, uh, to be married in, in a time in church history when it's really tough to be married? Uh, what, and also, what would you do maybe have to, to improve things? Right? So, so it's a, just a little thought piece, you know, um, uh, to, to, to attend, to see, see how, see what goes on. You know, look at, look at how effective the presenters are. Look at how they're being received. Um, you know, ask yourself, is, are they getting through? Um, are, are, these, are these couples here uh, just uh, looking bored as could be, and they just want to get through this because it's, it's, it's another hoop that the church makes them jump through and so forth? So you want to ask yourself all those questions and see, um, see what's good about it and see what you, uh, think about what you might do to improve it. Okay? Uh, and that, um, I would do that sooner rather than, well, you have to wait a little bit. So you studied a little bit of merit, but, um, but uh, you don't want to wait to the very end of the course. Um, it's due at the end of the course, um, but um, but you don't want to, you know how things are when you're taking courses. You don't want to have things piling up. So that that would be worth 25 percent of the grade. For those of you who are auditing, uh, it's just the midterm and the final. So the midterm is is worth a third. The final is worth two thirds. So. Um, <clears throat> Now, these two sections in the syllabus, we have been required to add uh, this year. It's something new that we're adding. Uh, first of all, academic integrity. Is that over this in other courses? Um, it'd be good to, to be aware of this, right? Um, I, I, was, I was really shocked. I had been a priest a good number of years uh, when I came here as a faculty member. I have to say I was shocked to find out that plagiarism is sometimes a problem in the seminary. How does that work? You know, that wants to be a priest because presumably he wants to save his soul and save other souls. He's committing this big sin in order to become a priest. But it happens, right? Um, and, and maybe for deacons, who knows? So, so plagiarism, I'm just reading here, plagiarism or academic dishonesty of any type will not be tolerated at St. Joseph Seminary. All members of the St. Joseph Seminary community work together to fulfill our mission, which is rooted in Catholic principles of honesty, integrity, respect for human dignity and care, uh, for the common good. Uh, all students are responsible for adhering to these principles to ensure a culture, a culture of intellectual honesty and academic integrity, and therefore are expected not to participate in or tolerate plagiarism or any type of academic dishonesty. Please refer to the student code of conduct and the plagiarism slash academic integrity policies in the student handbook for more information. And then uh, number seven, the course content policy. Uh, we, we, just had a little question about that uh, beginning of this uh, class. Uh, St. Joseph Seminary and College, the seminary, course materials and class recordings are intended for curriculum and course-related purposes and are copyrighted by the seminary. Okay, so this is something new. This is all copyright. Right? So appropriate access to this content is given for personal academic study and review purposes only. Unless otherwise stated in writing, this content may not be shared Distributed, modified, transmitted, reused, sold, or otherwise assimilated. So, if I find any um, any parts of my classes on YouTube, uh, somebody is going to be in big trouble. You know, somebody could end up in jail. So, um, so don't you know, make sure that doesn't happen. Be sure you don't show this to, to anybody. You know? uh, it's just 
it's like your own personal note that's all it is. And at some point we, we kill it. We just, we just uh, erase the important. Uh, As a, a brief bibliography there, I, I already mentioned the most important work on the bibliography, which is uh, the one at the very bottom. Um, the exegetical commentary of the Code of Canon Law um, that is um, uh, published by the Midwest Theological Forum. That's the uh, University of Navarre commentary. Uh, but there's some others that are very useful um, also. The um, uh, Father Ferris, Eastern Catholic Church's Constitution of Governance would, would be useful. Um, and also, even more than that, at the very top there, uh, the Canon Law Society of America uh, has the um, Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches as well. Right? And there's a good commentary that's published by the uh, Canon Law Society of Great Britain in Ireland. It's called the Canon Law of Letter of the Spirit. So uh, those are the other sources for commentary if you're confused about something, want to go into something uh, in more depth. Good. Okay, so any questions about any of that? Good. Okay. I have a question, Father. Sorry, my. Jackie, I can't see you. I, I, I know. You won't be able to see me. My camera is like, you know. Okay. So, Father, I thought when you were audit, auditing, you didn't have to do an uh, exam. Uh, I was told there were some requirements. Uh, I could double check on that, but that's what we've done in the past. Okay. So the requirements are less, but I believe that's the case. We're, we're, it's still, I think it's still only for the, the deacon candidate. You have, have to take the test. No. Yeah. Oh. Right. Oh. If you're not in formation. Oh, okay. All right. right. Yeah, so Jackie, I think you're right. I think if you're just auditing, yeah, then it's just a matter of taking attendance, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I keep forgetting we have, we're mostly deacon candidates, but those who are not deacon candidates. Yeah, last year I had, it was all deacon candidates. So if you're not a deacon candidate, uh, then, um, yeah, so this doesn't apply to you. Thanks for clarifying. Any other questions, commentaries, comments? Good, okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, let's just get a little bit into um, the notion of canon, canon law itself. And when we talk about canon law, if you talk about, if you mention canon law to uh, the average Catholic in the pew, maybe, um, and even as, uh, even as some priests, probably most of them will react by saying, oh yeah, it's all those rules and regulations, you know? Remember when, I remember when I was uh, uh, taking my first course in canon law, I believe it was in this room, uh, a good number of years ago, um, and we, we had, in those days, we had to take canon law almost every semester. Uh, uh, for various reasons, but um, so I remember after the first core, the first class, uh, Father Joe Penna, uh, I don't know if anybody knows who he was, but he's, uh, he's a great professor of canon law, who apparently was the one that, that wanted me to follow in his footsteps. So um, at the end of the course, we had this, uh, I had a classmate who didn't last very long. Uh, I remember his name was Michael Craig, and uh, um, he was kind of, Kind of out to lunch, and he was one of those. This is back. This is back in the 70s, late 70s, right? Was 1981. So there was this whole antinomian 
mentality in society. There still is among a lot of people, but antinomian, you know what that means? Um, no. That's an important word to know. Antinomian means you're against law. I hate using this term, but when I was a seminarian, and before I was a seminarian, when I was uh, uh, going to high school and college, it was a time of the Vietnam War. Uh, it was uh, just a time of tremendous upheaval in the, in the whole culture. Um, and uh, there was a, a, a phrase that had been coined by President Eisenhower uh, uh, called the military-industrial complex. You've probably heard about that. So everybody was... Uh, Know, against the system, against the establishment, uh, that kind of thing. That was that was the mentality. We were so frustrated because our friends were dying over in Southeast Asia, you know, um, and, and it was also the time of um, uh, a lot of uh, civil rights activity, you know, and it was at a time when um, the, um, uh, the, the the segregation was so much a part of the culture in places like Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, that was being challenged, uh, first and foremost by Martin Luther King, but other people as, as well. You know, um, so there was a lot of upheaval, upheaval, a lot of a lot of violence. I mean, you had um, Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., right? and, and others were almost all peaceful protesters, and they were met with horrible violence uh, by um, you know by government officials, state government officials. Terrible time, you know, and so um, in, in that respect, it was also a very hopeful time. But there was this attitude towards law that, that basically laws were made to be broken, and laws were something that uh, more often than not would restrict people. You know? um, so th there was that mentality uh, about law. And when it came to the church, and you see this today, when people talk about laws in the church, their attitude towards it, unless they're devout Catholics, their attitude towards it typically is, oh, those are a bunch of arbitrary rules that are made by all those old men in Rome, and uh, we don't have to follow any of those. You know? So, um, so that uh, that unfortunately is kind of the mentality that uh, a number of Catholics have as well, and we have to dig deeper. Uh, and, and as we begin this course, and especially as, as uh, you guys are now seasoned veterans here at the seminary. Uh, it's important to understand the um, everything that, that happens in the church, everything that the church is about, in terms of, of, of you know what the church is, uh, and everything flows from that. So where does canon law come from? Does we have a Bible? No. Yeah, I've been asking that uh, that question at the first class of uh, uh, every time I, I, I teach it, um, and uh, nobody has a Bible, and then I think about. Uh, I went through a big uh, conversion experience when I was in, in, a student in college, and I got to know a lot of Protestant evangelicals, uh, and they were always talking about um, how Catholics uh, don't read the Bible, they don't know the Bible, etc. You know, and they would be appalled, you know, that a professor stands up in front of the class and asks somebody if they read the Bible, because they would all walk around campus with their Bible all the time. Right? So, um, but uh, be that as it may. The, um, the origin of all canon law 
And I'm in, uh, I'm in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 22, um, verses 14 to 20. Luke 22, 14 to 20. Um, Anybody have, you know, nobody has a Bible on their iPad or something like that. Can you read it first? Luke, 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 Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came? Yep. And when the hour came, he sat at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup. Remembrance of me. Do this in memory of me. What is that? What is that statement? What kind of statement is that? It's a direct. It's a direct command. It's a command. Like tool for the sacrifice. It's a law. Sorry? Tool for the sacrifice. Tool for the sacrifice. Right. But the statement itself, it's not um, it's not an opinion. Uh, it's not just a whimsical kind of comment commentary. It is a command. It is a directive. It is a law. Okay? All law in the church comes from that that one law. Do this in memory of me. And why do I say that? Because the whole church is centered on and flows from, uh, is constituted by the Holy Eucharist. It's the Paschal Mystery. That's what we are. That's what we are. So everything flows from that. Everything in the church. So when the Lord is saying, do this in memory of me, he is saying, as it were, do the Eucharist be the Eucharist, be the church, right? Because the Eucharist forms the church. It all comes from the Paschal Mystery. What happens at the Last Supper? It is the death and the resurrection of the Lord. It is the Lord uh, becoming present for us, the, the one eternal sacrifice. It's the heart of, of uh, not just the church, it's the heart of all reality. And everything flows from that. So everything that uh, goes on in the church comes from that. So when, um, when you can see this, quite literally, uh, when it comes to uh, the canons about the Eucharist itself. So if there's a canon, uh, well, say liturgical law, not even a canon, but canons that say, these are the colors for the vestments, you know? Um, or a canon that's, that, uh, that says um, that a priest may only take one stipend for, for mass, you know? Uh, nitty gritty things like that, you know? Uh, who, who has custody of the key to the tabernacle? What the, uh, what the chalice must be made of, all that kind of stuff. All of that comes from this commandment, do this in memory of me. But doing in memory of, doing this in memory of our Lord means that, yes, we celebrate the Holy Eucharist and we need directions about that, but then we do what the Holy Eucharist is, which is the whole mission of the church. And the mission of the church is going to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. So do this in memory of me means that, right? So it's, it's everything that we do, it's everything that we are about um, as a church. So it all comes from the Eucharist. So when we're getting into the weeds with um, uh, a canon that says you, you have um, uh, 
are responding to, does not like the decision of the tribunal, uh, in the marriage case has 15 days to appeal, you know. Um, uh, you know, all that, that all comes from do this in memory of me, because do this in memory of me means the church exists. And the, what happens at the Last Supper is this miracle of the church existing, you know. So everything that the church is about is part of this pastoral mystery. But because we're human beings, um, that means we have to be concerned with, um, somebody has to set a rule for uh, what time classes are gonna begin. You know, that's, that's part of the pastoral mystery. Uh, the decision about whether or not you are allowed to, um, to take your own personal recordings, that's part of the pastoral mystery. It's all, uh, the, the, the quizzes and exams, it's all part of the pastoral mystery, right? Uh, everything the church is about is part of the, the pastoral mystery. And that's what canon law is. It is living out the, the, the pastoral mystery. Uh, that's what it's there for. So it's not just a bunch of arbitrary rules and regulations. Right? Um, let's see, we, we go to, what, 9.30, right? right? So do you want to take a break now? Want to go a little bit longer and then take a break? Yes. We'll go a little bit longer and then we'll take a break. We'll go to maybe 18 minutes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, so there's another way of looking at this. Um, you look at it from the point of view of Pentecost, right? and um, you've all seen EWTN, I presume, at some point, right? I used to watch it with some frequency years and years ago, and I don't know if they do this now. I haven't seen it much recently, and I have to confess, but uh, every once in a while, I remember they used to put on some of these old chestnuts, um, some of these, these good old um, Catholic, um, you know, films. Yes, uh, they still do. They still do? Yep. Um, well, there was one that I was I was uh, watching, and it, it was from the late 50s or early 60s. Um, and I think it was illustrating Mysteries of the Rosary, because they had little vignettes. Uh, and there was this one vignette that was Pentecost. And it was done, they did these things with famous actors in cheap sets. So, so you had um, Raymond Burr, I don't know, does anybody, anybody know who Raymond Perry Mason. Uh, Perry Mason. Perry Mason. Yeah, Perry Mason. Yeah. I remember him when I was a kid. Oh, he yeah. was an awesome, you know, actor. You know, uh, had gravitas, literally, because he was a big, heavy guy. You know, he had gravitas. You know, um, and um, you know, importance. Um, and he was, a, you know, he played an attorney, Perry Mason, and so forth. Well, they had him playing Peter, and they were illustrating Pentecost. So they were all seated at, at, at a table. You know, and there's Peter there. And remember, had a deep voice, and he was kind of telling the guys about what the Lord had said and so forth. Or I think they were praying, something like that. So he's there with all the other apostles. And all of a sudden, uh, this wind starts blowing. So you can picture there's some, you know, big fan off, off, the, off the camera, right, blowing on. And then, then everything starts to rock, you know. So, uh, so it's meant to be Pentecost, right? The uh, the, the wind and they didn't show the fire. But, uh, and afterwards. When the apostle says, oh, I feel different. I feel strong. I, you know, I feel like I know things, you know. And then Raymond Burr says, well, of course, because the Lord promised you to send, um, yeah. send the Holy Spirit. So now we've received the Holy Spirit. Now that we've received the Holy Spirit, uh, okay, Andrew, you're going to Greece. Thomas, you're going to <laughs> India. You know? So they receive the Holy Spirit, and immediately they get organized. They receive the Holy Spirit, and St. Peter starts giving orders. It starts laying down the wall. Here, here's what we have to do. That's what it means to be human. You know, we receive the Holy Spirit, but then we practically have to do things, right? 
Um, if, if somebody um, says, you know, I don't worry about law and all these things that the church does because I'm spiritual, you know, you know that type. Um, what, what is that person going to accomplish? You know, that person has a very truncated spirituality because it's just something in their head, you know. But but the Paschal mystery and the gift of the Holy Spirit means that we are living we're living out the Paschal mystery. It means that, that we are um, uh, in very practical ways we are proclaiming the gospel and doing everything that's connected with that. So um, so Andrew, you're going to Greece, okay? But then part of the Paschal mystery was Andrew then had to pack his things. Say goodbye to his friends, you know. Find uh, uh, book passage on something or other. I don't know how, how we got to Greece and whatever it was, you know. So, um, and all of that, all of that, again, part of the pastoral mystery, the Holy Spirit working in the church. So, the Holy Spirit comes, and immediately things start getting organized. And that's a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there was a time, again, when I was uh, in the seminary, um, and before that, when. Um, uh, getting things too organized meant that uh, you were stifling the spirit. You know, that uh, the spirit meant we're just free to just kind of do whatever we want. You know, um, and, and, and people with that attitude didn't accomplish very much. But the spirit, on the other hand, impels us to work, to organize, uh, to, to do things, to proclaim the gospel. Um, and all of that is reflected, of course, in canon law, because you need rules. Where two or more people gather together, you need rules. Uh, so things can be organized and, 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 and uh, things can be accomplished. Um, so, so from the very beginning, the church was aware of the fact that she had to organize herself. She wasn't just a bunch of people, you know, saying praise the Lord, but the church was aware that she had to organize herself. Uh, that meant that someone had to give directions. The community, the community needed rules. And from the beginning, and this is reflected in the, in the Bible, uh, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, from the beginning, the community had absolute assurance that it could do this. The community had absolute assurance that it could um, organize itself, that it could make rules and regulations in order to enable uh, the community to carry out the, uh, the commandment of the Lord to, to preach the gospel to, uh, to all nations. And, um, it's reflected in some beautiful passages in uh, in the Bible. Again, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit. If you um, if, if you go to Luke 24, so chapter 24, verses 45 to 59. This is very near the end of St. Luke's Gospel. Uh, 40, 40, 45 to 49. Sorry. Um, so he told he tells them. Um, basically, he says. Um, uh, he's sending them to wait for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the tongues will be fulfilled. Um, so, uh, and then he says, you are witnesses of, of all of these things. And then he says, um, behold, and here's, here's a command, and, gives them, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I love that passage. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then uh, we go to uh, to the second part of, of St. Luke's uh, work. Uh, St. Luke wrote the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, both from St. Luke. So you go to the Acts of the Apostles, 
chapter 1, verse 8. Again, where he, he's telling them before he ascends into heaven, he says, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then, so the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, right? And the church begins to get organized. And in the Acts of the Apostles, we, we see the, uh, the church living out of their life. Because the Lord had given them the commission, go into the whole world, preach the gospel to every nation. And now you see the church doing that. He sends the Holy Spirit down upon them, and they go out. And when they go out, things get very complicated because you deal with human beings. So things get very complicated. And you know, reading the Acts of the Apostles, often they don't get the reception that they had hoped for. Other times they get a surprise reception and people suddenly are baptized in the Holy Spirit who aren't even Jewish. And then that question comes up, how can they become Christians? Because only Jews can become Christians. And that, uh, as, as you read in the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of St. Paul, that became uh, a, a, a center of dispute in the early church. What about non-Jews who have faith in Christ? What happens to them? Because the church in the beginning thought of herself, and still does, thought of herself as the fulfillment of, of Judaism, uh, the people of God. The, the pe people of God of the Old Testament are the Jewish people. Uh, the church is the people of God of the New Testament, but the fulfillment of, of Judaism. So what to do when you have all of these Gentile converts, what do you do about them? Are they going to have to follow, follow the whole nine yards? Are they going to have to become uh, Jewish in the sense that they follow all the kosher laws and all these other laws? What to do? And it's very interesting. The Acts of the Apostles has been nicknamed the Gospel of the Holy Spirit. And St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, and in his own Gospel for that matter, is always saying, so-and-so is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Acts of the Apostles, he was saying every once in a while, uh, um, the Holy Spirit is, is sending so-and-so there. Or the Holy Spirit prevented uh, Paul from, from going to a certain place. And the Holy Spirit was directing Paul in a certain way. So St. Luke is very much aware um, of the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in the church. And, and the Acts of the Apostles is a story of what the Holy Spirit does in the, in the church, in the early church. And he gets the church organized. So we have the situation in Antioch, where the question of the Gentile converts came to a head. What to do about these Gentile converts? Here they are, um, these non-Jews. Uh, they haven't become Jewish, and yet they're coming to Christ, and they're showing charismatic gifts. Some of them are baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and all this. What do we do about them? So the church gets organized. The boys in Jerusalem, right, the officials in Jerusalem, Peter and, and James and John and all the rest, they send a delegation. Right? This is the power of the Holy Spirit. They're sending a delegation. They're getting things organized. The delegation goes to Antioch and observes and questions and then writes a report. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just somebody, you know, saying, praise the Lord and I don't need rules. No. We are organizing. Right? So we go out into the uh, go out to Antioch where there's a dispute. What is going on here? So uh, they go out and they uh, and they observe. They uh, one of them is Barnabas, who's rejoicing to see what's going on. Um, they come back. They report what they uh, had observed, 
to the Council of Jerusalem, and then there's a debate in the Council of Jerusalem, right? This is considered um, the first ecumenical council. They get into a debate. Uh, they're, they're, their sides in the debate. And this is how things are often resolved in the church. It goes with two sides, and, um, or maybe several sides, and ultimately you come to an understanding. So there's a debate, what to do? And they, uh, and they, just, and they reason it out. They're not just saying, okay, here's the situation, Lord, tell us what to do. Go away, you know. No, we think about it, because God has given us gifts. We think about it, we, um, we discuss it, we reason it out, and we come to a decision. And then they send a letter, a decree, and we're going to we're going to study decrees. They send a letter, a legal document, okay, to um, to Antioch. And in the, in this document, this is now um, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, and verses 28 and 29. And in the um, and it's really that that whole context. But this is the heart of it. So they. Um, so they send the, the, uh, the letter, and Samuel quotes the letter. He says, this is a letter delivered by them, very formal letter. The apostles and presbyters, your, presbyters, your brothers, to the brothers in Antioch, here in Cilicia, Gentile origin, greetings. We've heard this and blah, blah, blah. We have chosen, we've done this. So we're sending um, Judas and Silas, who convey the same message by word of mouth. And the message they send is, this is verse 28, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit. Really. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, namely to abstain from meat, sacrifice idols, and blood from meats and strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right, very well. But it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. In New York, you say, what chutzpah? Really? <laughs> how, how do you know that, this decision of the Holy Spirit? That's the mystery of the church. That's Pentecost. That's uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's living up the Paschal mystery. And that's where canon law comes from. Okay? So the church has supreme confidence that the Lord is with us. The Lord is leading us and guiding us. The Lord has sent the Holy Spirit, and the Lord is directing uh those who are working in the church, whether they are high officials or um, uh, you know, people counting the collection in, in, in parishes or wherever they are, the Lord is working through all of this. And through all of that, he inspires um, what ends up going into the code of canon law. It doesn't mean this is the Bible. We'll get into this. It doesn't mean this is the Bible. It doesn't mean the Lord dictated every canon in here. But it means the Lord is inspiring this process. Uh, the Lord is at work guiding this church. And canon law is, is very much part of uh, the, the Lord guiding his church. Okay? So let's take a break now and we'll, uh, we'll continue. So say, so how long is the break? 15 minutes? Yeah, that's fine. 25 up. It's a continuous living reality. 
So uh, we don't have uh, a, a book of canon law that was that was given to the apostles at the Last Supper, right? Or even by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, right? There's not one book that comes from the early days, and that's it. You know? um, but again, it's a continuous living reality, and we're going to see. We're going to we're going to do a very very brief <coughs> romp through the uh, the history of canon law, and you'll see that you know human beings change, and society changes, and, and evolves, and, and new questions come up, and because of that, excuse <coughs> me, the church is a continuing living reality, right? Uh, moving through history. And um, and so it, it adapts um, even the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, as we saw with this, as we've seen in the Second Vatican Council, to changing circumstances, right? So that's that's just natural, right? Um, <coughs> excuse me. So the um, the, the, the church um, and therefore, canon law. We can say um, this is, should be obvious. We can say that they are fundamentally incarnational and sacramental. Right? The church, therefore, canon law, fundamentally incarnational and sacramental, divine and human reality. Right? Um, so we are not just uh, spiritual people in in the in, in the pejorative sense. Um, that uh, we, we just like to meditate on eternal verities and, and we have nothing to do with ordinary life because that's beneath us, you know. That's Gnosticism, something like that. That's not Christianity. Christianity is incarnational, right? So that means we, um, uh, so we, we live a deep spiritual reality, but we live in the flesh. Uh, the Word became flesh and it's dwelling among us. So uh, the church, canon law, incarnational and sacramental. The Lord comes to us sacramentally, again, not just by um, you know, sitting around and praying, which is important also, but he comes to us in, 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 um, sacramentally. Water, uh, bread, wine, um, the sacrament of marriage, sacraments, oil, all these things. You know, that's, that's how the Lord comes to us in particularly powerful ways. So, uh, so the church, canon law, we have the divine and the human reality. Okay? And... <clears throat> The, the Second Vatican Council, um, Korean the Church Lumen Gentium, uh, especially, um, underscores this uh, this great fact. The um, chapter eight of Lumen Gentium uh, is is important to just to be aware of. Um, and uh, this particular book I have here uh, gives as an introduction to that uh, this this statement. The mystery of the church is the image and reflection of the mystery of the incarnate word. Right? So the mystery of the church is the image and reflection of the mystery of the incarnate word as the divine nature and human nature of Christ mysteriously unite in the one person of the word. Right? As the divine nature and human nature of Christ mysteriously unite in the one person of the word. So in the church, the divine and the human are merged in such a way that, as the Second Vatican Council states, and this is the Regentium 8, the society structured with hierarchical organs, right, the bishops and popes, the society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, right, the visible society and the spiritual community, 
the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches are not to be thought of as two realities. On the contrary, they form one complex reality which comes together from a human and divine element. In this way, the social structure of the church serves the spirit of Christ who vivifies it in the building up of the body, according uh, to Ephesians. So this, again, Lumen Gentium chapter, uh, chapter 8, uh, the social structure of the church serves the spirit. Right? It serves the spirit of Christ who vivifies it in the building up of the body. So the social structure of the church includes law, includes canon law. Canon law serves the spirit. Um, it vivif again, it vivifies the church uh, and builds up the body. Um, uh, okay. <coughs> So with that in mind, we'll just look briefly at some uh, obvious uh, perceptions or misconceptions of, of, of canon law. That one phrase, it's only canon law. You know? You've heard that probably from some priests. Uh, you've heard that, I'm sure, from, uh, from lay people and non-Catholics. It's only canon law, big deal. Canon law is just a bunch of rules made up by some men in Rome. You know? Well, who cares? You know? I remember. Um, <coughs> When I was at, at Catholic University, uh, as I mentioned to you, um, we we, um, uh, we usually just dressed the way you guys are dressed because uh, otherwise you became a, a, an instant source of controversy. Um, and the, the mood of the campus was very, very, as, as we would say today, left-leaning, right? Um, very much against uh, law, against many of the teachings of the church. Um, you know, we wanted to, you know, have, uh, you know, women priests and all, all the usual kind of stuff, right? So one day I was at, uh, at lunch with some other priests. We're all dressed in lay clothes. Um, there was a Friday in Lent, and we were at lunch in one of the dining halls at Catholic University. And there was a, a, a religious sister sitting with us. I didn't tell you the story, right? It, it, no. No. Started, you know, the other classes, right? There was a, a religious sister sitting with us who was wearing a habit with a veil, the whole nine yards. Um, and she was tall, so she made an impression. But that didn't fool anybody because she was very much, you know, the Charlie Curran mentality. She was very much, you know, get, get women ordained and down with the teachings of the church and all this kind of stuff. You know. um, and she was involved, I guess, with campus ministry or something because there were some undergraduates there who knew her, right? And they were serving at Catholic University, uh, run by the uh, bishops of the United States on a Friday in Lent. Yeah. Uh, right. They they were serving. Uh, they had fish, but you had uh, hamburgers as an option. So these two girls, these two uh, co-eds, come up to. Uh, I just ate myself for saying co-ed. You know, <laughs> these, these two young college girls come up to our table. They ignore us. They go to the sister, and one of them says, "Sister, you know it's Friday in Lent, and we're we're not supposed to have meat, but I really want to. I don't like I don't like uh, fish. I want to have a hamburger." And the sister, with, with zeal in her eyes, said, you have a hamburger. Those are only man-made laws. You don't have to obey man-made laws. She was so angry that, that men had made laws. You have that hamburger, you know? So she ordered her to have the hamburger, right? She ordered her to break so the that's, law. You know? so that's her sin. Pardon? That's her sin, then. Yeah, it's, it, it is her sin, yeah. yeah. But, but, but that's the understanding that, that, the, that law in the church is, is it's just a bunch of, of rules made up arbitrarily by some uh, you know old men in Rome, you know, and it has 
uh, and they, they have no uh, effect on us. You know? um, and that, that's a that's a very common attitude to this day. Right? Um, certainly was uh, when, I, when I was younger, but it still is very much. And that's something we have to be aware of also. Um, there was a he was then a high official of the Archdiocese of New York uh, when I was working on the tribunal. And there was a question that came up about something that had to do with liturgy. And this, this priest um, uh, had some kind of a background in liturgy. And uh, he was, a high, as I said, a high official of the Archdiocese. So I asked him a question uh, about the situation that had come up. He said, well, it depends what you want to do. He said, if you want to follow the law, then you have to do this. But of course, if you want to be pastoral, then you should do that. You know, and there's that whole thing. You know? There's the law; you follow the law if you're, if you're rigid, right? Or you can be really pastoral and break the law. You know, so uh, we see this reflected in statements of some bishops, even some bishops in Europe, even one of the Italian peninsula. I won't get into that. But um, but that that attitude that if, that if you follow the laws of the church, then you're rigid. You know? so we break we break laws, and we make we make our own laws that we like better. Um, and again, this has nothing to do with what our Lord says when he promises that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you um, and uh, the Holy Spirit guides the church. It, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. Um, this, is a, this betrays rather a truncated understanding of the role of law in the church as being something um, just very arbitrary. There's a, um, um, you, you might have heard this term, there's a, um, a positivistic um, understanding of the law. That, 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 law, um, that um, law consists of positivistic uh, rules and regulations. Meaning, basically, uh, that if, something, if the law is positivistic, it has very little to do with reality. It, it has very little to do with uh, the needs of the community, uh, what is called for by the nature of uh, human beings, natural and so forth. It's something that is very arbitrary. That's basically another way of putting it. Positivistic uh, law, uh, laws would be arbitrary laws. You know? and, and there's this positivistic understanding of law that it is um, simply arbitrary. Human beings kind of just do what they want. And we see that understanding, unfortunately, in our country, right? That um, you look at what's going on in Congress. They're all they're playing all of these games. Um, they're, they're they're just pushing through all of these laws, not because these are good for people, good for the country, but they're power plays. And I'm showing my political muscle because I can push this through, kind of thing. You know, we see that in the church. You know, unfortunately, um, not as often as you see it in Congress, but you see it sometimes when when um, you know bishop would say is is angry at some group and makes some uh, makes up some regulation that, that adversely affects the group for no other reason except that he doesn't like the group, you know, something like that. You know. Um, or you know, just whims, you know, um, the bishop could make a decision that, you know, all priests um, I don't know, they're forbidden to uh, say private masses, you know, I've heard that almost uh, you know, because uh, it's just arbitrary in part of the bishop, you know, so positivistic attitude towards law. Uh, it's just whatever whatever I darn well want to do. And I, I've got the power that I can force you to do it. You know? um, so of course then one would say it's only canon law. 
and nobody has to obey it because it's just a result of power plays in the Vatican, as opposed to what law really is normally in the church. Right? Um, so you have that cavalier attitude towards law. The laws are made to be broken. There's just a bunch of rules and regulations. Who needs them? Uh, you know, we're going to do what we want. That cavalier attitude versus something that we're seeing more now, um, scrupulosity that's coming. It's kind of making a ret return. And I think it's a result of this cavalier attitude. Because that cavalier attitude towards law means that you have no foundation. There's no basis for your society. There's no basis for, uh, for the church. And people want, uh, they want security, they want certainties. You know, they want to know what, what, the, what the church really wants us to do. And so um, you have this other attitude now of scrupulosity. You know? um, and I, I've seen that sometimes among, uh, among some younger Catholics, not, not too many, but some. You know, that, um, they'll worry about outside of Lent, um, you know, forget about that story about the nun, but outside of Lent, you know, um, to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm allergic to shellfish, you know, uh, and there's nothing else available except meat, and what, what could I do? Well, you know, have, have a ham sandwich, you know, it's, it's okay, you know, and uh, the law makes other provisions. You can, you can have some other kind of uh, uh, penance, uh, which is where the law reads them. And so, um, you know, people want certainties. You know, I see me sometimes, I'm very, um, I'm friends with a lot of people who, um, uh, who, who were interested in Latin mass, uh, or Father Conley certainly, you know, but a lot of young, probably most of you know this, a lot of young Catholics are very interested in Latin mass. You know? and, uh, and sometimes they'll get a young Catholic, who's like 25 years old or something like that, will say, uh, you know, um, Father, you know, I haven't fasted since midnight, you know, and I, but I want to go to Holy Communion. It's okay, you know, it's okay. You, know, you have to reassure them, so, you know, so, so that, that, you know, they, things swing, uh, sometimes the opposite way. Um, any priest will tell you, uh, even to this day, in confession, um, you know, you'll very often get uh, some elderly, my experience is mostly with Irish, elderly Irish, but sometimes elderly Italian, sometimes, um, more recently in my experience, elderly Hispanics, uh, usually ladies, um, who are, um, you know, are all upset because, uh, you know, they're, the woman is 80 years old and hasn't been in confession for a year, but has come to confession because last Sunday there was a snowstorm um, and she couldn't get out of the house and couldn't get to mass and she feels like she's committed a moral sin and go to hell. You know? um, that kind of thing. So you, you have that scrupulosity you know, that, is, uh, that, that you encounter. So you have the, those two extremes, that cavalier attitude versus scrupulosity. You know? So um, and we have to beware of both of them. Um, but especially, I think, to this day, we have to get the uh, attitude, the, the objections of people who have this cavalier attitude, especially uh, some of our fellow priests and bishops. So, Father, you just said it, it's canon law that you can eat meat outside of Lent on a Friday? Oh, yeah, you know that? <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's, that's a whole thing. Yeah, that's for another course. Uh, with that much, it used to be, it used to be um, until they changed the law that every every Catholic over the age of seven had to abstain from meat every every Friday. Uh, then they changed that, uh, and you can look this up in the code. I forget the, the number of the canon, but they changed that to say that um, every Catholic must perform some penance every Friday, and that penance is to be determined by the bishop's conference. Right? 
Division Conference in the United States punted and said, it's up to you. You can, uh, you can uh, have whatever sacrifice you want to make on that day. So it's up to you. Okay. If you eat meat. If you eat meat on that Friday, then you have to perform some form of penance? Yeah, it's or? up to you to decide what penance you're going to do. One form of penance, uh, I think most people prefer it, actually, because it's traditional and it's shaded for meat. I got it. Uh, you can choose another penance. Yeah. Of course, most Catholics, actually, don't do any penance on Friday. On Friday maybe, if you're lucky, maybe, maybe on the, the Fridays of Lent. Mm. Um, okay. Um, just a reminder, you, uh, you've all studied some philosophy, right? All right, well, whether you have or not, let's get into, get into this a little bit. Um, the virtue of justice. Justice is a virtue, right? Uh, and and uh, the word um, use, which means law, comes from uh, the word justice, right? Use. Justice is a virtue, and it means simply um, that you give everybody what is their due. It's as simple as that. This comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, but it's what we call natural law, right? Um, it's, it's just it's just the reality of things. Justice means it's a virtue which orders that each person be given what is theirs. Um, and now the big. This is the big revelation for me when I was sitting in this classroom, um, and Father Joe Penna just mentioned it almost as an aside. And it's certainly a revelation these days in, in our, our troubled uh, uh, American culture. Law exists to protect rights. <laughs> Isn't that what law is for? You know, But it came as a revelation to me uh, when I was a seminarian, because I was thinking in terms of, um, you know, canon law tells us what we need to do ultimately to achieve salvation, which is true, but salvation is the right that law is there to, to protect. But laws uh, exist to protect rights, um, which comes as news to uh, Nancy Pelosi and <laughs> all, the, all the rest of them, right? They exist to protect rights. You know, uh, they're, they're not there to, um, uh, to, to be instruments of, 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 of some powerful politician flexing their muscles, but they exist to protect rights. They're in the service of the people uh, uh, for whom they are, for whom they are passed. You know? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all, that all men are created equal if they have doubted, oh, you know the thing, remember? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. You know the thing, come on, man. <laughs> You know, when I'm referring to Biden, I just forgot that, that quote. You know. But they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? So they come from the creator, they don't come from Nancy Pelosi, that among these are life, number one, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. That's why a government exists. That's why Bill de Blasio, that's why you are where you are. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, securing their just power, their just powers, from the consent of the governed. 
really? <laughs> you know? And that whole understanding of law is something that, that is, is just gone out the window uh, uh, in, in the, not entirely from the halls of Congress, but from the offices of, of many, many people who, are, uh, who walk the halls of Congress, right? Uh, but law exists to protect rights. It exists to protect rights. I'm talking about Joe Biden. That's what that's what law is all about. So you have um, never mind, um, you know, Joe Biden and others violating our rights. But uh, getting back to priests. So when a priest um, and and you've encountered priests, maybe you have. Um, I know I have. Uh, in the course of my life, uh, priests who uh, consider themselves uh, free from the merely human constraints of of, of, of canon law. I'm not bound by canon law because I have the freedom of the spirit. And I don't know if, I hope there aren't too many priests like that now, but there were when I was when I was younger. So what do these priests do? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I want with the literature. So I don't like these readings today. Um, I don't like the way that prayer is worded. You know, uh, let me change things a little bit, you know. So um, what happens when a priest does that? He's violating your rights. Right? He thinks he's free. Yeah, but he's uh, he's um, he's putting you in bondage. He's violating your rights because the priest is not free in that sense. He is at your service, right? And, um, and when he's when he's uh, just kind of doing what, whatever he feels like doing, because he's he's a free spirit and he's not bound by canon law, he's violating your rights. And that's going on a lot. It was going on, but it's not going on now as nearly, nearly as much as it, as it was. So, um, the famous definition by St. Thomas Aquinas of law. Does anybody know what it is? Moral law? $50,000 and the car. Moral law? No, law. What is law? What is law? According to St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, it is, it has several aspects. Law is, first of all, an ordinance of reason. That's number one. Um, it's number two, directed to the common good. by one who has uh, care of the community.
So those are the four elements of law. Law is an ordinance of reason. And it has, it has to be reasonable, right? Um, it has to flow from the nature of things. It, it can't be something uh, just, just arbitrary. It has to be an ordinance of reason. And it is directed to the common good. So I, I, I can't uh, say if I were a bishop, I couldn't pass a, a, a law uh, saying that um, um, the, 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 um, the mother of the bishop of the diocese is to be given an annual stipend of a million dollars, you know, or something like that, right? That that is uh, some a favor for one person. It's not an ordinance for the for the common good, right? So uh, it's it's an ordinance of reason directed to the common good. It's directed for for everybody or for you know, for a, a whole group. It might be for a particular parish or whatever it might be. <coughs> Law is an ordinance of reason directed to the common good, and it has to be formulated and promulgated. In other words, formulated means it's got to be spelled out. What does the law say? You know, it can't be the bishop, you know, I'm thinking of a law that says, you know, um, he's got to say what it is. He's got to formulate it. He's got to say, um, I am directing you to do this. You know, the law says, you know, um, everyone over the age of 21 must do X, or whatever it is. Every priest in this diocese must do Y. You know, it has to be formulated. It has to be spelled out, usually in writing. It's formulated and then promulgated which means uh, basically published. It has to be announced. It has to be made known. So the, the bishop can't be sitting at his desk and, and writing out a nice law saying that, you know, every, you know, every seminarian must uh, uh, make, uh, make a visit uh, to the Holy Land or something like that. You know, that'd be great law. Well, you know, but um, um, he can't just write it out and put it in the drawer. That's formulated, but it's not promulgated. He's got to promulgate it, which means in that case it would be uh, said to the rector of the seminary, or um, uh, involved a larger group, it might be published in the in the uh, newspaper of the diocese, or something like that. But it, so it has to be formulated, has to be written out usually, or spelled out somehow, and promulgated. And the one who does does this is the one who has the care of the community. So it can't just be anybody. It, it can't be um, you know some. Um, uh, so somebody who's just sitting in the pew, who's not ordained or, or somehow designated as an official of some kind of, of parish or diocese, it has to be someone who officially has the care of the community. All right. So there's four aspects. This is uh, always a neat thing to ask on exams, because it's very important and it's, it's violated all the time. It's an ordinance of reason number one. It's directed to the common good. It's formulated and promulgated by one who has the care of the community. That comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, a very famous uh, definition of law. Um, so the types of law, there are many different types of law. Uh, but in the, um, the Code of Canon Law, we have two main types. And they're just pretty obvious. Divine law and human law. Divine law and human law, right? Um, so we have, speaking of the Eucharist, you know, so divine law that's contained in the Code of Canon Law is that um, bread from wheat and wine from grapes are necessary uh, for valid matter for the Holy Eucharist. That's divine law, right? Human law would be uh, a priest is only allowed to take one stipend um, per day. So you have divine and human laws. Um, <coughs> 
So um, in, a, in a sense, all of canon law is, is divine law in a sense, you know, because uh, all canon law has its basis in the will of the founder, right, of, of the Lord. And all canon law pertains to divine law. So our Lord, divine law, our Lord says, do this in memory of me, that's divine law. Um, so everything flows from that. And when, when there's a regulation about about uh, about vestments or about the education of the priests who are going to run to uh, your day to celebrate the Eucharist, uh, all of that, it's human law, but it flows from divine law. So the whole thing flows from divine law, everything we do, um, because the church herself is, is of divine origin. So it's, um, in, in that sense, you can say that the fact that this class meets uh, at 7 o'clock on Monday evenings, it, it, it comes ultimately from divine law, because ultimately it comes from the Paschal Mystery. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for the Paschal Mystery. So in that sense, everything is divine law. But, um, yeah, it's divine law, but the, uh, the fact that there are deacons, that's divine law. But the fact that you have to come here on a Monday evening at 7 o'clock, that's a human law that flows from divine law. So you have human law and divine law. Um, you know, an example of divine law would be the, the College of, of Apostles succeeded by the bishops. Bishops exist by, uh, the College of Bishops exists by divine law. This particular man being chosen to be a bishop is not a divine law, but the existence of the college of bishops is divine law. The existence, as I mentioned, of, of, of priests and of deacons, that's a, that's a divine law. Um, you know, the same with the sacraments, right? Um, they are a divine law, but regulating, you know, how, you know, where, where you can have a baptismal font and who can be a godparent and all that stuff, that's a human law, right? Um, so we have um, two types of, of divine law. The basic type of divine law to which everyone is subject is natural law. Right? Uh, it relates to people living in society, in society, uh, in general. And certainly the society of the church, natural law. For instance, natural law. Uh, every person has a right to their good name. Again, that's, that's, that's divine law. That's natural law. It's violated all the time now by the aforementioned Bill Blasio and Pelosi and you know, um, but uh, everyone has a right to privacy, right? And that's the point of violating that in space. Now they want to have a law uh, that will enable the government to see every single uh, banking transaction you make every time you you, you, uh, you deposit 25 cents uh, and you go to the IRS. So, so the, uh, whoever is in power in Congress then can, uh, can check to see what you're doing. You know, so you have a right to privacy. You have a right to free choice of state of life, uh, a, a, right, a right to life itself, all these things. So the basic rights that flow uh, from, from natural law. Um, and so they, they exist in uh, civil society, they exist in, uh, in the church as well. So there is a canon actually that says that you have a, uh, every, every, every person, but the canon itself uh, which refers to members of the church, says that every member of the church has the right to their good name. Right? Um, that's, that's natural law, which is divine law. So you have two types of natural law, you, uh, of, of divine law. All right, divine, you have divine law and human law. And divine law is divided into two types. First is natural law, uh, and then there is divine positive law. 
natural law and then positive law, divide positive law. Both divide. You know, divine positive law would be things that don't uh, flow from just reason itself. They, they, they're revealed. So again, bishops, priests, deacons, you know, uh, water for baptism, bread and wine for the Holy Eucharist, and so forth. You know, all of that um, is divine positive law. And they're commandments of the Lord, but they're not um, in, in, instantly accessible to, uh, to human reason without revelation. So natural law and divine positive law. Uh, that's, so that's, that's divine law, and then, of course, there's human law. Um, and the, um, <clears throat> and really, the fundamental nucleus of Kedah law is found in Revelation itself, right, um, because of the experience of the, of the early church. So uh, Revelation, both word and tradition, right, um, it's found in, in in scripture and also traditions that are that are passed on. The way we do things that that becomes law um, after a while. So um, divine law um, gives it gives the fundamentals of church law, but but it doesn't explicitly spell out every detail of every case. So you have to interpret divine law for uh, particular circumstances. Right? Um, so uh, we have all sorts of things that we're supposed to do according to divine law, but how do we do them uh, in this particular situation? So we start applying human laws to divine law to, to implement them. Um, and we sometimes even borrow from uh, civil law. Um, so canon law sometimes contains elements of, of human civil law right? uh, that interpret and, and, apply, and apply divine law in different historical circumstances. I'll give you an example, uh, the church has uh, judicial power of divine origin. The church has the authority to judge, right? The bishop of the diocese is also the chief judge of the diocese. We, uh, we have tribunals that are set up in diocese. That's what I was doing for many years, working on, on the tribunal for the archdiocese. Um, so that power is given to the bishop, right? And he frequently delegates it. You know, um, the judicial vicar is someone who is uh, a vicar for, he, he acts for the bishop in judicial matters, right? But the judicial power is something of divine origin, right? The, the, the bishop can make decisions, uh, uh, can judge uh, situations. Typically, we're talking about uh, about marriages, about annulments and so forth, right? So um, the church has that judicial power. Um, so the, the judicial power is of divine origin, fine. Okay, but how are you going to implement that power in a particular situation? So canon law specifies qualifications for people who work on the tribunal. So if you're a judge in a tribunal, you must have a, a, a degree in canon law, right? Um, so that's not of divine origin, that's of human origin. Uh, but the judicial power itself is of divine origin, right? Um, so divine origin, uh, divine law would say uh, for, for ordination, for, uh, for someone to be validly ordained, a priest or a deacon, a person must be 
uh, in Latin, a vir baptizatos, must be a baptized male, right? Uh, so th that's the absolute bottom line for the validity of ordination, whether it's priest, deacon, bishop, whatever it is. The, the person must be a vir baptizatos. That's all that, that really that the divine law says. But human law, uh, we have all sorts of human laws specified, and they specify that uh, he must have a certain type of education, possess, possess certain spiritual human qualities, and so on and so forth. You know, get a degree from seminary, whatever it might be. That, those are all the human laws, right? And the human laws change. The human laws change to be different, different historical circumstances, right? So um, the way um, clerics are trained has, has evolved over the years. It used to be one point, uh, basically, uh, young men would just kind of live in the bishop's house, and, and the bishop would kind of just instruct them on his own kind of thing. You know? uh, seminaries really came into their own after the Council of Trent in the 16th century. You know? So that's uh, that's a newer way of training of training priests, right? uh, and it, and it, it it evolved. The way of training priests evolved to meet different historical historical circumstances, but the basic divine law. Your baptizatus did not change, did not change. So, so canon law can, can and does evolve, it has to, uh, as human society evolves. That's important to, to understand. Now, what, <clears throat> there are all sorts of different types of law. Um, Everybody have this now before? Mm -hmm. So we have types of law, definitions. And exhortations. Instructions. Um, <clears throat> and then that would really include, um, you know, things like rules, regulations. Finally, penalties. Okay, so they're all different types of laws. Right? Um, sometime, um, sometimes, sometimes, uh, these definitions, sometimes uh, they're just pure theology. Um, and very often from the Second Vatican Council, sometimes from um, earlier documents. Um, can I read you the, the definition of the Holy Eucharist itself? I don't think I read that to you.
It's a beautiful statement, Canon 897. Uh, it's the beginning of the whole section in the, in the, um, the code on the, on the Holy Eucharist. Canon 897 says, the most august sacrament, Augustissimum Sacramentum, the most august sacrament is the Blessed Eucharist, in which Christ the Lord himself is contained, offered, and received, and by which the Church continually lives and grows. The Eucharistic sacrifice, the memorial of the death and resurrection of the Lord, in which the sacrifice of the cross is forever perpetuated, is the summit and the source of all worship and Christian life. By means of it, the unity of God's people is signified and brought about, and the building up of the body of Christ is perfected. The other sacraments and all the ecclesiastical works of the apostolate are bound up with and directed to the Blessed Eucharist. So that is a beautiful statement. It comes from Vatican II and other sources, and it is basically a definition, right? It's, it's, it's a pure theological definition. There, there are certain um, uh, laws that might flow from that, but basically it is a definition, right? Um, you'll find um, also in the, in, the, in the quote, there are exhortations. It'll say, um, there's a very um, important exhortation that says that the priests are earnestly uh, exhorted to say mass daily. Right? They're not actually required to, but they're earnestly exhorted. Mother, Holy Mother Church is begging priests to say Mass every day, but it's not actually required for a number of reasons. Um, so that's an exhortation. Right? It's, you know, uh, if you want to be a Pharisee, you can uh, you can ignore it. Right? Um, you, don't, you don't absolutely have to, but uh, but the Church really, really, really wants you to. Your mother, the Church, wants you to. Right? So, um, and then rules, regulations, directives, right? Instructions, all that. that that's pretty obvious, telling people what they, they have to do. And finally, penalties, right? So all those are types of, of, uh, of law. Um, so the, um, the Code of Canon Law, as I said, the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with this, right? The whole process that, led, that leads to the formulation of Canon Law has a lot to do with the working of the Holy Spirit um, in, in the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit working in the church is what leads to the Bible itself, right? The experience of God's people, where God is acting powerfully in the midst of his people. Uh, then people remember what he did, and they, they talk about it, they write poems and songs about it. God is inspiring all that talking and that writing and that composing and so forth, they're writing it down and so forth. Uh, then they begin to um, gather together, when they're praying, they read some of these compositions, and after a while they realize the Holy Spirit is saying, this is my word that comes out of the lived experience of, of, of God's people. Um, it's somewhat similar with the Code of Canon Law. The Code of Canon Law is not the word of God, right? So I, I, you know, I pick this, I open this up and say, um, um, read, um, Um, to Canon 832, to publish writings on matters of religion or morals, members of religious institutes require also the permission of their major superior in accordance with the Constitution. Okay, you know, that's, that's a human law. Um, is that something directly inspired from on high by the Holy Spirit? Um, not in so, many, in so many words, but the Holy Spirit is certainly behind the, the considerations that led to the production of that. And similarly, with most of the, almost all of the laws that are there in the, in the code, so it's not it's not the Bible, 
but um, it's, it's an authoritative expression by the church of where the Holy Spirit is leading her at this moment. Right? This is a very modern document, 1983. It was just revised, part of it, well, one whole book of it was revised uh, just a few months ago. You know? So it's an expression, an authoritative expression by the church, not just an opinion, but an authoritative expression by the church of where the Holy Spirit is leading her at this moment. It's flawed, they make mistakes, but basically it is, um, it is the church's authority under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, okay. Uh, I think that's enough. I think you're all kind of beginning to nod off. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. I have a, just a little bit more of the introduction. Then we'll get, um, next week we'll get a, a little bit very quickly into the history of the Code of Canon Law. Uh, it'll be very quick. Give me some basic uh, names and movements and things. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have to figure out that all those who are not taking this to credit.